they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you're new to City Church, we have this spring been doing a series called Portrait of Jesus. And the hope all along has been much like a good, renowned portrait artist that that we would, with one brushstroke after another, we would bring out the full flavor of who Jesus is. That you would clearly see who he is in his character. That has been the goal of the series. And it's my hope that that would be the case for, for all of us in here. Part of the reason why I say that is that Christianity is unlike any other religion in the world, in the universe, in fact. I mean, all other religions essentially say, look, there's a founder, and that founder may be a teacher, that founder may be a prophet, but they, they want to point you towards the way of salvation. But only Christianity says that Jesus is not just the founder, he's not just the prophet and the teacher, he is the way of salvation. Therefore, it, it, it behooves us, it's incumbent that we focus our attention on the portrait of Jesus, our Savior. And, you know, some of you said this to me, I certainly have experienced this. It is a travesty when you go to a church and you, you hear a sermon and Jesus is barely mentioned. And certainly as the one who would be the savior of sinners. It happens quite often, doesn't it? You might hear a great sermon on parenting or something very practical, but Jesus is never brought into parenting, for instance. And so we are hoping that here at City Church in a series like this, any time of the year actually, any series, that you would come to see him clearly. That's my hope personally, has been since we started this church 13 years ago. And it is that continues today, in fact. And what we're doing today is we're looking at a portrait picture of Jesus that really brings out his authority. But what we're going to see along the way is it's, it's not a harsh authority in one sense, but it's a loving authority because of the wisdom, a loving wisdom. So to that end, we're going to look at just two things this morning. I know some of you are saying, Wait, you're not doing three points, you're only doing two? Yes, that's right. Uh, number one, I want you to see a challenging authority that comes when you meet Jesus. But then secondly, and perhaps in a surprising way, where it comes from will be a loving wisdom. A challenging authority and loving wisdom. So let's jump in here. We're going to look at verses 27 and 28 to begin with. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or, or who gave you this authority to do them? So let me set the scene for you here. Jesus is in the last week of his earthly ministry. Palm Sunday has just taken place. And one of the first things that happens after Palm Sunday, that Jesus comes in, he goes to the temple. And this is the, what happens right before the passage that we're looking at. He goes into the temple, and because it's Passover, the nations are gathered. And so by custom and by law, the Jewish people from around the world would have come in to celebrate the greatest feast in Judaism, which is Passover. And they would have come in into the temple, and there in the temple, uh, they would have had to exchange their currency from their land for the local currency, because it's part of the custom and, and law, is that they must purchase a sacrifice for their sins at the temple in the local currency. But the problem wasn't that that was happening. The problem was where it was happening. So money exchanges were expected, but when Jesus comes to the temple, he finds that they're not on the outside of the courtyard. Instead, they're inside. Now, that's a problem. Can you imagine money changers being set up in here in the midst of worship? Whether worship is boisterous, certain styles and traditions are more that way, others are more contemplative, 
But in, in neither case would you be able to focus on the Lord. Not, in neither case would you be, have a sense that you could concentrate on Him because of all the noise of the exchange. So Jesus comes in with a whip. It's the only time where we ever see Jesus being violent, by the way. Wherever we see Jesus enraged, essentially. And He goes to town on the money changers. And then some, right? And so Jesus takes a whip and so forth. And, uh, man, I tell you what, it is one of those dramatic scenes. I mean, aside from the crucifixion itself, it is the most dramatic scene in the ministry of Jesus. And he cleans that place out, in essence. And so now in our passage, the Sanhedrin, these, these are sort of like the, the highest ruling council in Judaism. I mean, they had control of everything. Typically, they're very powerful. There's 71 of them. And they're also typically very wealthy. And they had control over the temple. And so that's the context, that's the background of the question here. This is, by the way, not a question of curiosity. Oh, Jesus, tell us more about your, your authority here. I'm, I'm just curious, where does it come from? This is, who do you think you are? We are the ones in charge of the temple. This is our place. What in the world are you doing here pretending as an upstart that somehow you're in charge of the temple? That's the feel. You feel me on that? That's what's going, going on here. So, what was the cleansing of the temple about? Jesus was saying, this is my place. Now remember, if, if you saw that passage earlier, uh, perhaps you know the story. He says, my house will be a place of prayer. He wasn't saying, oh, the temple will be that place. He was saying, my place. This belongs to me. Jesus has been making claims all along in his in three plus years of ministry. You know this probably. Jesus is demonstrating his authority. You know, the, there's the scenes where he excommunicates essentially uh, demons, right? He exercises them, right? And so he's he's demonstrating uh, his power. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. But he's demonstrating that he's a miracle worker as well. But then there are other scenes where he's actually forgiving sins. There's this one scene where he forgives the sins of a woman. He says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And do you remember what the, the question from the crowd is right after that? Is who is this that he would be able to forgive sins? This is an authority unlike any other. In the places where he's teaching and, and the people respond, he teaches as one with authority unlike anything we've ever seen before. And so the whole ministry of Jesus has been focusing on who he is as Messiah, that he's more than prophet, he's more than teacher, but he rules with authority. And so now showcase showdown, right? And so here it is. This is like, this is like the gunfight at OK Corral, right? You, you, you see this in, in movies. You see this in literature, that there's rising action and it comes to the point of climax. And apart from the crucifixion itself, this is that point. This is that point of, of the showdown, of the climax between, between the ultimate powers on earth in Jerusalem and Jesus. And this is the moment, in part, where his authority is defined for us as to what it means. Not only for them, but also for us. And so it sets up what happens next. It's in verses 29 and 30. Let's look there again. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this passage, you may be saying, what in the world is John's baptism about? 
Like, why is he bringing that up in response to this question of, who do you think you are? So, think about who John the Baptist was. Some of you are saying, I know he wasn't a Presbyterian because he's a Baptist, right? Bad joke. So, it has nothing to do with denominations. He's actually, his real name would have been John the Baptizer as a nickname, really. And so, what that meant was that John's whole role and call in ministry was to baptize people for sin. He was to call them to repentance. And if you remember the, kind of the early stories in the book of John and other places that, that John was saying, uh, repent, for the Messiah is at hand. And then Jesus comes on the scene. Remember what he says. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And remember how Jesus responds? Jesus says, baptize me. And John's like, no, 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 you of all people don't need to be baptized. And what was Jesus doing? He was saying, I'm identifying with humanity. And so I'm identifying with their need. And so I'm being baptized here. But remember what happens on the other side of the baptism by John of Jesus? The voice. And what does the voice say? The father says, this is my son in whom I love and I'm well pleased. And then he says, listen to him. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is brilliant. Ironically, He is actually answering their question by not answering their question. He actually is is saying, the baptism of John, where does it come from? Now, he puts them in a predicament here. We're going to come to that here in a little bit. But in in putting them in that predicament, by pointing to John's baptism, he's given them the answer for his authority. Just as John's authority came from heaven, and just as Jesus hears the voice of the Father, and those surrounding saying, listen to him, he's saying, this is where my authority comes from. It comes from my baptism, which was the beginning of my ministry, my public ministry. This is what it was. So he was identifying himself in microcosm form of what happened to John is what's happened for him. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Before we move on to the second thing here. I think every day... For those of us who would identify this morning as Christians, I think every day we wake up and we actually have that same question. Jesus, who do you think you are? I really do. I really think that's the case. Um, I know in my own life, and I've shared this before in various ways, but I know in my own life, there are times when, for me, the the, the way it gets expressed is is typically I feel powerless, I feel out of control, and often I'll go to anger. I know different people handle sense of powerlessness in different ways. Some of us get angry. Some people go numb in other ways. But for me, I, often I'll get really angry. And, and I, I remember, for instance, when we were dealing with infertility. You know, I just, I've shared this story a long time ago. It's been years. But I remember just how angry I got with God. I mean, I just, I mean, I, I, I put sailors to shame in my cursing. And, and I, I was just so bent out of shape because things were not happening the way that they should have been happening. And I didn't consciously do this, friends, but it was the equivalent of saying, who do you think you are? It's like this, My life is not working out the way that I had planned for it to work out. You with me on that? I mean, all of us in here have a story like that. Life has not worked out the way that you thought it would. How many of us were planning for a pandemic? I mean, life doesn't, and so we find ourselves saying, if you are on your throne, if you really are an authority, then why has life worked out the way that it has for me? Or does it feel like it's worked out at all, actually? And so I think that this is where this passage really comes alive for us, because I think all of us in here have a sense of, yes, I can say that to, to God. Who do you think you are? But here's the thing. Remember, in that cleansing scene, Jesus turns the tables over. 
I mean, he goes to town. He rearranges the furniture in his Lord's house. And here's the thing. He turns that question, he turns the tables, he turns the question on us. And he says to us, when we do, he says, who do you think you are? See, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if Jesus is who he says he is, he has ultimate authority over our lives. And, and, and the way that you know that that's a, a point of inflection for you spiritually in your life is that all you need to do is look for the place in your life that either a confidant or a spouse, if you're married, uh, a dear friend, a colleague. So there's a place where, it, where people would say, or maybe in your moment of honesty, you would say, man, this is that place where I struggle to really give God full control of my life. For some of you, it could be in your sexuality this morning. You know, whether single or married. And it's really hard for me to, to give my to give what I believe or what the world says sexuality is and give that to, to God. Or, or it could be, you know, they always say, if you want to know how someone lives, look at their pocketbook, right? Their checkbook. We don't use checks anymore for the most part. But look at your debit card or your investment accounts, whatever. Like, like what, what would God say? What would your, those closest to you say about what you prioritize with your, with your finances, with your money? And then as soon as I maybe say that and, and you think, oh, well, if someone's going to push me on that, a pastor or a friend or a colleague or someone like that, like, hey, like you should be you know, doing this with your money or something like that, then we feel that resistance in us, don't we? What's that about? And it could be, I'm not saying it always is, but it could be this very same question. Who do you think you are? So the question I have for you this morning is, what is that place? All of us have one. What is that place right now for you this morning where you say, if Jesus is Lord, this is where he's testing me. <laughs> This is where he's, he's po- poking and prodding. He, he's getting in my grill, right? He's, he's getting in there, and he wants to do business with me, right? I, I had a friend this past week here in the neighborhood, and he said, hey, I'm moving. Elsewhere in Atlanta, but still he's moving. I, I said, oh, I, wow, you've been here for seven years. What, what's going on? He goes, well, um, we, we rent this place. We rent our house, and, and the owner wants to move back in. And I was like, oh, man, He's, yeah, that's just how it is. I mean, for those of you who rent right now, and this is not so much an apartment where you have a you know, one-year contract, that sort of thing, and typically those go on and on if you want. But if you're renting a home, you know this, right? You know that at the end of that, that period of time that you've agreed to rent, it's possible the owner could say, I want to move back home. <laughs> and what are you going to do? Take him to court? Of course not. Well, there's nothing you can do. It's like you got to move out. And we don't own this space here. By the way, if you have $4 million, let me know. We could change this scenario. We don't own our offices. And so we have to get permission to make changes. And if you're renting a home, same thing. You've got to get permission to make changes. I think, spiritually speaking, for a lot of us, listen to this. I think a lot of us in here think that we are owners of our spiritual lives, but we are renters. Jesus Christ is the owner of our life if you're a follower of Christ. That's what it means. It means that he can't be simply a savior of sinners and even say that he's my savior. He has to be your Lord as well. And you have to say that in every square inch of your being, you're a renter. You're not the owner. That you are a steward of God's finances. You are a steward of your sexuality. Right? You you are a steward of your relationships, of your ethics. You are a steward of all these things to leverage them for His kingdom and saying, 
You're my Lord, I bend the knee. That's what's at stake here, I think. Alistair McGrath, a theologian, put it this way. Christianity does not assert that Christ has authority on account of the excellence or acceptability of his teaching. Rather, the teaching of Christ has authority and validity on account of who he is, God incarnate. That is the only question you must answer this morning. Is he who he says he is, God incarnate, Lord of the temple? But listen, there's good news for us, because none of us would pass that test in that question if it wasn't for his loving wisdom, secondly. Towards the very end of this passage, we see that Jesus doesn't essentially answer the question. Well, you don't know, Jesus. Well, then I'm not going to tell you either. I mean, listen, I, I took debate classes when I was in high school. Uh, I see some who have as well. And, and uh, I, when I come to this passage, I love it. I'm like, you go, Jesus. I mean, you talk about like a ploy in debating. That, you know, it feels brilliant to you. I mean, does it feel like the way to you? It does to me, for sure. I was like, oh my gosh. That was like, I mean, he just did some jiu-jitsu on him or something here. And... And so you get to this and you say, man, how did he do it? Let me tell you three things about his wisdom this morning. Okay, the first two are going to move fairly quickly. Third one, I'm going to stop and we're going to end there. Number one, here's wisdom. Learning to speak when you need to speak and learning not to when you don't need to. Right? I mean, isn't that just like 101 for wisdom here? Is learning to speak when you're supposed to and learning when you're not supposed to? Jesus understands that. There's a phrase that's used elsewhere in, uh, in the scriptures. Uh, well, uh, Jesus uses it, in fact. He says, do not cast pearl before swine. Ever heard that phrase before? We actually hear it colloquially now, and a lot of people don't even realize where it comes from. But Jesus said it. And what he was saying there, we understand it. You, you don't put a pearl necklace around the neck of a pig. I mean, what a waste of money and resources. And yet, I find myself, when I get on social media, tempted to engage in conversations with people who, who's, that's not even their real name, right? Their screen names. Really? I mean, I, that, who knows who you actually are? And engaging in a conversation is completely meaningless in terms of changing opinion. The reality is, and, and actually now they've done scientific research to tell us what we know by common sense, and that is you never change anyone's opinion through social media. You just don't. And yet, how many of us engage, you know, you, you see that off-the-chain off the comment, right? And, and you're like, oh, they're wrong. I'm going to let them know. You know, as you start the tweet or whatever like that. By the way, do you know that Twitter has come out with a new feature now? Did you hear about this a couple of days ago? They're, they're now, if they think it's the language of your tweet looks mean, there's now a question that you have to answer before you, do you really want to send this? Yeah, I'm like, it's a brilliant thing that Twitter's done. Finally, they've done something that I can agree with. Like, that's great. Before you hit that, uh, do you really want to send this out there? Because it's going to get out there, and who knows what's going to happen. I love it. Jesus absolutely knows. And here's the thing. Whenever Jesus engages in true dialogue, here's the key. Relationship. Jesus always engages those who are curious to know him. Remember what I said last week about Nicodemus the Pharisee. Why does Jesus attune his voice? If you didn't hear last week's sermon, let me encourage you to go back. And here, why does he attune his voice to the curious Nicodemus? And why does he respond the way he does? Because he wants relationship there. Jesus always does that. He engages based upon where the relationship is. The same should be true for us. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. I actually preached on this last summer in a series on Proverbs. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Some of you are saying, wait a minute. 
That sounds like a contradiction. Well, it's not. I mean, you can imagine the writer of Proverbs put him right there next to him. He knew what he was doing. What does it mean? Well, Jesus actually engages them both here. Answer not a fool according to his folly. Jesus goes silent. He's not going to play the game. He's not going to take the bait, right? Like, he's not going to play the fool, lest you be like him. But answer fully according to his father, lest he be wise, and that means to expose. And so the paradox here is that Jesus doesn't respond, but in the process he exposes them as being a fool. It is a brilliant thing that Jesus is doing here. And so the first thing I want you to see that part of what wisdom is that Jesus teaches us here is, is, to, is to respond according to the environment that you're in. Here's the second thing, very quickly. He's aware of his environment. What do I mean by that? Well, part of what he goes on here, this predicament that he sets up that we're going to look at here in close, this predicament with the, with the Sanhedrin is that he knows the crowd around him. He knows who's surrounding this, this, this debate, as it were, or this, this, this demand by the Sanhedrin, as it were. He knows the crowd. And we know that because of how do they respond here? In part, the second part is like, man, if we don't embrace John the Baptist... And the Gospel of Luke also does this story. And it says there that they say, they're going to stone us to death. Jesus knows that he has the crowd on his side. And very wisely, he leverages that. I'll never forget a friend of mine, more acquaintance than a close friend. But a friend of mine back in college, this is a few years after college, that he told me the story. But when he was in college, he was in a philosophy class. And he was in a basically in a debate with another student. Sort of a debate broke out. And here's the question. The question was, is, is there one true morality from, from which to live our lives? Or does it, you know, it just depends on whether you're religious or irreligious and, you know, truth is relative, that sort of thing like that. And so he was a Christian and he argued, no, there's, there's one God and there's one character of God by which we are to live our lives. And his other student scoffed at that and he's like, not a, not a chance here. I believe the truth is relative. Well, one thing that he knew about the crowd in the room that day, was it was a pretty large group, and he knew that there were a number, uh, quite a few women or female colleagues of his uh, who identified as feminist. And so, and so he said, well, to this other guy, he said, well, I have a question for you. He says, in India, they practice something called sati. Now, it's not very common today in modern-day India. It's been outlawed in part because actually Christian evangelists, uh, one named William Carey in particular, he saw it as barbaric, and brutal as a practice. But the idea of it is that, that when a husband dies, uh, the wife should throw herself on the funeral pyre because they primarily cremate, not bury in India. So you should, you should, um, should emulate yourself, which is alive, throwing yourself onto the fire to die. Sati. And so he said to this guy, he's like, what's the morality of Sati in light of what your position is, that truth is relative, morality doesn't matter. Uh, He was caught. Because he looked around the room, my friend said, and he realized that if he responds with what he actually believes, then he's going to have a lot of women who are very upset. Because essentially what Satie says is the worth of a woman is only the worth of her husband. And if he doesn't exist, you don't need to exist. In fact, even today, there are plenty of uh, feminist activists around the world, social activists, who have outlined this practice as being one of those barbaric practices against women. And I love what my friend did there. He captured the essence of what was happening in the room to create a predicament, which leads now to the last thing. And this is where I want to spend some more time with here in closing, because I think this is what really hits home for us. And that is this. Jesus leaves 
these leaders in a bind. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by a bind? And why would I say, remember what I said, loving wisdom. I've been saying a lot about wisdom so far. What's so loving about all this? Well, it's this. It's being left in a bind. Look at verses 31 and 32. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they had all held that John really was a prophet. This is the bind that the highest authorities in the land of Israel are in. Because they know that if they acknowledge the first part, that John the Baptist truly was from God, then they know exactly what that means about Jesus. That means that they should then call him Lord. And they can't do that because of pride and other reasons. They'd have to give up their power and their authority. There's no way on God's green earth, no way in hell they're going to do that. Well, what's the alternative? Well, I can come over here and then say, okay, well then John the Baptist is, is just a man, that's all. Crazy man, maybe. Oh, what's going to happen then? I want you to see something. They have a choice here. They can either surrender the pride and acknowledge or not. And you know what's going on there? The fear of men is what's going on there. You know, it's, isn't it fascinating that they have all this power and all this authority, and just like that, it disappears when they think about the crowd around them. No courage. No true authority, mind you. It's a great paradox. And Jesus has them. Jesus knows that. They are in a bind. What's so loving about that, Scott? It's this. You know, when I was in the, the, the counseling program, I, I've mentioned other stories, but I've not mentioned this before. I, I, I felt like uh, when I started this program with 19 other students, I felt like I was watching a television program. And what I meant by that was uh, like friends or something like that. I, they were doing life in front of me, and I was just watching life pass me by. And the reason why that was happening was because I was really hard to get along with. There's two reasons for that. Number one was I was pretty aloof in my life at that point especially. Number two was that because of my anger and things related to that, uh, people just kept their distance from me, quite honestly. Uh, I could be demanding, that sort of thing. And and so I I, I found myself with my supervisor of my program, who's actually head of the program, named Jim Cofield. And, And Jim was brilliant in that that he left me in this bind, this predicament. Here's what my predicament, my bind was. Was I realized that, that because of my decisions to be aloof, my, because of my decisions to, to kind of be the Lord of my own life here and have life and do life on my terms, it was costing me something. It was costing me friendships. It was costing me relationships. And I couldn't have one without the other. I had to give up my, my rights to myself, as it were, to be the captain of my destiny in order to actually engage in healthy, true, loving relationships. And eventually, over time, over the next six to nine months, I began to see that. I began to repent of that. And now, today, some of those people that I, I admire the most and I'm actually closest to are people in my program. And I came out of that years later. Years later. It took me some time. That's a bind. That's a predicament. Listen, if you have a sense in your heart, this has been said of you, much like the Sanhedrin, that you're a people pleaser, that's a bind. What do I mean by a bind in that sense? Well, you have a choice in the matter. Uh, you can, you can uh, in order to make friends, in order to have people on your side, you, you go out of your way to, to, to ensure that you please them in some way. It's what you say, maybe it's what you don't say, it's what you do, maybe it's what you don't do. You go out of your way to make sure that you have friends, right? But what does it cost you? Yourself. It costs you a sense of self. And so when, you, when courage is required and called for with someone, you choose not to engage with 
with courageous speech and, and confrontational speech because you know that it could cost you that relationship. And, and you cannot imagine a scenario where they would be upset with you. And so it costs you your sense of self, your sense of integrity. You see, that's a bind. And a wise counselor, rather than trying to rescue you from that bind, the one where you see, damned if I do, damned if I don't, I can't have it both ways, a wise therapist or counselor will actually allow you to feel the weight of your bind until you can see the bind. You see, when Jesus does that, he's being loving here, believe it or not. He actually wants them to be rescued. He doesn't want to destroy the Sanhedrin. He would rather see them, just like we saw with the Pharisee Nicodemus last week, he would rather see them rescued. But in order for them to experience repentance, in order for them to experience a rescue, they have to see the predicament that they're in. And so he sets this up so they can see that they have to make a choice. And what do they choose to do? To stay in the bind. In other words, to stay enslaved. All of us in here, every day, are faced with being bound by our choices. And the question is, will we respond to that in saying, I see the bind and I repent of the position and the place that I've placed myself in? I'm not meant to live as a people pleaser. I'm not meant to live as a cynic. I'm not to live in light of my uh, sexual decisions and practices in a way that, that keeps, me, keeps me feeling like I'm just being used right now. I mean, this is what Jesus does and he does it for love. Why? Because in order to repent, we must be first exposed. To see our powerlessness and to see that he alone has power. Remember, Jesus says what? I've come to cleanse the temple. But did you know there's another passage? It's actually in the Gospel of John where he stands in front of the temple. And he says, destroy this temple. And in three days I will rebuild it. And the religious leaders scoff. Do you remember this? They scoff and they say, it took generations to build this thing. And you're going to do it in three days? And then there's a parenthetical. John says, they did not know that he was referring to himself, his body. Don't you see, Jesus comes to cleanse the temple because he is the temple. What does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If you're a follower of Christ, the temple has been on the move. And Jesus wants to come in and say, I must rearrange the furniture of the temple. You. Jesus, in order to be Lord of your life, must come into your life and saying, I must be the Lord of your sexuality. I must be the Lord of your finances. I must be the Lord of your ethics. I must be the Lord of your work. I must be your Lord every square inch. It is the most loving thing they can do is to oppose us. And here's where I want to end. I mentioned the Sanhedrin. But did you know that there was one member of the Sanhedrin that did respond in a different way? Do you know his name? Joseph of Arimathea. If you know the story of the crucifixion, you know that right after Jesus is crucified, Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate and he asks for the the body of Jesus Christ so that he might be properly buried in a wealthy man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, we're told, was a member of the Sanhedrin and he became a follower of Christ. Now, was Joseph in the crowd that day? Maybe. Maybe he was there listening And maybe this was the moment that he changed his life and he was transformed. How is that possible? Because Jesus Christ is the one who made us clean in the temple by being the final sacrifice of the temple. And Joseph got it. Joseph saw it. Joseph saw the bind as a member of the Sanhedrin and Jesus released him from that bind. That's where I want to close. I want to ask you, what is your bind right now?
What is it that Jesus Christ wants to release you from to allow you to experience redemption? You must first see your bind. And in his loving wisdom, with his authority challenging you, he gives you that privileged opportunity. May we be those people here that respond by saying, Jesus Christ, Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your authority. I know that often in our world today, we don't see authority as a gift. But your authority was without sin. It wasn't harsh for the purpose of destroying us. Instead, it was challenging for the purpose of redeeming us. And you were love. Love itself. Wisdom itself. A wise authority. Lord Jesus, thank you for caring so much for us that you will leave us in our binds long enough so that we might see, actually, that we're living out of a false self rather than a true self so that we might embrace your design, what you have made us for. And so, Father, for for all of us in this room, help us see our binds to the work of the Holy Spirit living in us. For those who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ, either online or in this room, help them to see that their bind is the first one, is to name you as Lord, and to see that life comes in naming you as Lord and giving full control, surrendering life to you. Lord, may that be the case, that here at City Church Eastside, we lay out before others, before this city, the great city that we love, that you are Lord of heaven and earth, and you're Lord of this temple, ourselves. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now we take some time to respond to God's word, first through confession, and then we're going to go to the table. To prepare our hearts for confession, I want us to stop and ask the Holy Spirit, what for you, what, what's he bringing up? What binds coming up for you? When you think about your desire to honor and follow Jesus, what, what pushes you back? What are you hard-pressed against that keeps you from engaging at times? Is it the fear of man? Is it afraid of your spouse? Is it feeling impotent in your family to bring about the power needed to change your kids or your marriage? What is it? What is it that, that keeps you back? When you, but all that desire is there. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that for you and how we can lean in and trust Him more. Let's take a moment. Now, as his church, let's together pray this prayer of confession, remembering that confession is his invitation 